Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Recently, Tom moderated a panel at UC Irvine about political cartooning, and we talk about whether or not it is ridiculous to object to or outlaw certain kinds of political speech in cartoons. Our friend, the screenwriter and Dickens scholar John Romano has come back to talk about the novel American Pastoral by Philip Roth, which he has adapted as a movie, and not just in his own head. (laughs) It's actually a movie that Ewan McGregor directed and starred in. Jennifer Connelly is in it. This is the major literary adaptation of of the year. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the fiction editor of LARB. And Lori, you just got a book deal. I did. I sold my book on Oscar Hammerstein that I've been working on since I was six years old. Does it have a title? Uh, Beautiful Morning. That is a fabulous really? title. Thank I think that's you. a really Tom. Yay. What do you Tom? What do you think of that title? I think it's an excellent title. And my other co-host, he is the founding editor of LARB, the professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Hey, Seth. Tom, you recently moderated a panel at UC Irvine on political cartooning. Uh, A central thrust of any panel on political cartooning these days is going to be the Muhammad cartoons uh, that people have done around the world for the last decade or so that have enraged so many Muslims. Could you tell us a little bit about the panel before we dive into a discussion about it? Yeah, there were uh, five cartoonists on the panel. Uh, several of them had represented Muhammad in one way or another in their cartoons. And a couple of people thought that it was wrong to do so. And the person who made the kind of strongest case for that was Lalo Alcaraz, who is a local cartoonist who has done cartoons for The Weekly and for The LA Times and is also a co-author with Gustavo Arellano of Border Town, new animated series. Um, and he, I think said it very clearly. Let's let's listen. I think that the worst people in the world are those people, uh, especially like uh, Pamela Geller and all these people that were drawing uh, Muhammad cartoons just because they could. You know, that's like a, an abuse of cartooning. And we all know that our words have uh, consequences, and that's that's the compromise that we have by, you know, all of us having freedom of expression, you know, you're also free to punch me in the face for saying something. So, I mean, that's just how life is. I think that analogy is completely ridiculous. The idea that uh, a satire that appears in the pages of a newspaper is anything like punching someone in the face is on its face absurd. And I completely reject it. And particularly as someone who, who writes satire, I, I'm just utterly puzzled that 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 a cartoonist who whose lifeblood is free expression would take that point of view. Uh, let me see because I was there at the panel and there and there so there was context around it. And what okay, first of all he was the only one of the cartoonists who held this position. So you you know the majority held the position that you think that cartoonists would hold. But he was talking about the cartoons produced by the contest sponsored by Pamela Geller, who is this, I don't know, she, I guess she's described as a blogger in New York, and she kind of came to the fore after 
um, 9-11 with she led the protest against the building of a mosque. You know, she's just... She's a well-known right-wing anti-Muslim hate monger. That is what she is, Yes, exactly. Yes, and so she sponsored a contest where she was asking for cartoons about Muhammad. It didn't matter if they had any wit, any point, any artistic merit. She didn't care. They could be the crudest things possible. And uh, it was, I can do this, so I'm going to do it. And that's what he was reacting against. Well, let me respond to that by saying, good case, bad plaintiff. Because Pamela Geller is just pure evil, I think. Mm-hmm. And her her role, her, she's, she's a pornographer, mm-hmm. not a cartoonist. That's something entirely different. There's no point there other than outrage. The way porno movies just leech everything but sex and string that together to make a movie, there's nothing intellectually behind what she's doing except pure hatred. Although, frankly, to be honest, I, I think Pamela... Pamela Geller should be allowed to say what she has to say and let let her duke it out in the on the battlefield of ideas where she will always lose. Well, and so you have no problem with uh, incredibly anti-Semitic cartoons of, about about Jews. Of course, I have a problem with it, but I don't think it should be illegal. Well, I don't think that he was saying it's legal. He said it for him. It feels like a punch in the face. Yeah, I don't like it. It's, don't, doesn't it, it feel like a punch in the face when you see? No, one of it us? doesn't feel like a punch. If you have you ever been punched in the face? I think I'm about to be. <laughs> then you know it doesn't feel like a punch in the yeah, face. Yeah. I think that's drama queenie. He thinks it's beyond bad taste. Well, it, and I it, think that you probably think that I think Der Strummer. The, well, is I, I agree with him on that. Taste. It is beyond bad taste, and he feels like he's been punched in the nose. I'll give him a handkerchief to stanch the bleeding. But I just have a that's different. Like I just have a different you're... reaction. Yeah, but you can understand what what he what his yes, argument. Right? Yes, I can. And, yes, I and, can. And it, there is validity to that argument, isn't there? You know, it's such a subjective thing. That's his validity. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not mine. Well, you know, one of the things people talked about on this panel was Gary Trudeau, who came out with a, uh, a very controversial argument, which was that free speech fanatics, as he called them, free speech fanaticism become, becomes its own kind of hate speech. And some of the cartoonists found that <laughs> it can be kind of hateful itself. Here's here's Ann Telnes, who's a cartoonist at, at the Washington Post and has, has done cartoons for Newsweek and lots of other places. Here's what she had to say about the Gary Trudeau argument. And I have to tell you, I don't agree with Gary Trudeau. I wrote a piece against it in the Washington Post about it. I think he was completely wrong. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing about free speech becomes its own kind of fanaticism. Well, guess what? My free speech fanaticism doesn't kill people. What was... What was Trudeau condoning? I mean, Trudeau was saying that sat, because satire is meant to comfort the afflicted and flick, afflict the comfortable, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, which is what he was writing about in the okay. Atlantic at the time, uh-huh. were an example of punching down. And in, from his view, you should never punch down. He, exactly. He, he framed it as as uh, the cartoonists were coming from a place of privilege and they were mocking the poor oppressed Muslims. And he had a problem with that. Now, if you ask me, <laughs> well, since nobody else seems to have anything to say, I mean, there are poor oppressed Muslims. There are poor oppressed Muslims. So there are, all, so there should, are also fantastically yeah. wealthy Muslims. There are 1.6 billion of them around the world. There are all kinds of Muslims. Yeah. And so, so if I say the poor and oppressed Muslims, I think what what I'm what I'm mocking there yes. is is not the Muslims. What I am mocking is Gary Trudeau, who is patronizing, who is paternalistic, who from his place of privilege can I get any more peas into the sentence? <laughs> is is 
so incredibly condescending in his in his yaley snootiness he's the one who's coming from from this this high place dispensing thunderbolts about what other people can't do and i am so offended by gary trudeau's position on this i feel he has betrayed the artists the writers the cartoonists who've taken on this issue who are brave who really have courage who are in places like paris where they can get killed for doing it and i just find his his views on this issue completely abhorrent one of the interesting things about this panel is that as we went through the couple hours we were talking, you'd you'd kind of flip over from one of these ideas to the other. I, I, everybody can get angry at, at Gary Trudeau for this. And I think, again, everybody can understand a, a basic argument within it. So let's leave that aside for a second, because what happened was then this guy named Zunar, he goes by one name, who's a Malaysian political cartoonist and who is was on his way back to Malaysia to maybe spend the less rest of his life in prison or perhaps even get a death sentence for the cartoons against the regime that he had printed and that he had to print in his you know garage and hand out by hand to friends and you know samizat uh, publishing all of a sudden the kind of idea that Lalo Alcaraz and Gary Trudeau were having a, a, a debate about this fell away into insignificance because this guy's going to die for what he's doing. He was exercising free speech and he was punching up. Now, if, you, if I imagine Zunar all of a sudden drawing pictures of grotesque Buddhists or something in the context of, in which Buddhists are getting beat to death with iron poles in Hindu, you know, communities. I mean, you know, they, they, and you and he's making fun of the Buddhists who are getting beat up. That doesn't feel like bravery to me. You're what, he's, what he's doing Tom, with the regime, Tom, you're, 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 you hold it. You're, you're mischaracterizing the nature of these cartoons because the Muhammad cartoons, the Muhammad cartoons have become a catch-all for any cartoon involving a Muslim. And in fact, they're all different kinds. There are the the ones that spark the Charlie Hebdo murders, which basically were trying to satirize terrorists. And then there are the ones that mock Muhammad himself outside the context of terrorism. So we're talking about a, there's a, 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 a continuum on which these cartoons exist. We should be clear about that too. And I have no problem with piss Christ or, you know, blasphemy against various religious beliefs. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I do think that there's something about the limits of free speech, which have to do with what kind of needless damage you can do for a very little payoff. And so to kind of like, okay, yeah, we all, now we all know that to represent um, Muhammad, people don't like it. So we're going to do it because they don't like it. That's the Pamela Geller approach. But here's, but here's the point. And, and it's, it's one that I think really needs to be made, which is drawing a cartoon of Muhammad, any kind of cartoon of Muhammad, whether it's a terrorist or something meant to mock Muhammad himself and publishing it in, in Cairo in Kuala Lumpur in Riyadh, it's very different than doing it in Paris in New York, because what it's doing essentially is validating the values of those places. It's announcing, these are our values. If you don't like them, perhaps you'd be happier living somewhere else. America, love it or leave it. France, love it or leave it. Belgium, yeah, love it or leave it. London, love it or leave it. Yeah, no, those I, yeah are, those, I mean, that's what's known as Western values, Tom. That's post-enlightenment, which as a college professor, you should be defending. That's Nixon. 
It's not Nixon. It's the Western Enlightenment. Yeah, I don't think you have to defend the, you know, the Western Enlightenment makes a place for multicultural respect. It does not in, enforce one set of values. It's over the marketplace another. of ideas. I respect your right to disagree with me. Well, for a lot more on this on this subject, that is a lot more clips from the uh, conference itself, including Edward Snowden. Um, go to LARB uh, forward slash AV. Does Edward Snowden weigh in on the cartoons? He does not weigh in on the cartoons. He weighs in on other issues of freedom of expression. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK FM. I was walking to the studio today and uh, came upon David Eulin selling copies of Sidewalking, coming to terms with Los Angeles from the trunk of his car. You and did I, not. I, you joke, but I do have a box of books in the trunk of my car. So if you see him, just pull him over. <laughs> Let me finish the bit. And I dragged him into the studio. David Eulin has stopped back to tell us about a book we should be reading. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Seth. It's one of our favorite L.A. novels. It's a great L.A. novel. It's a book called Armed Response by a writer named Ann Rauer, who is a New York writer, who I first discovered when I was like, living in New York in the late 80s. She wrote a, a, an incredibly brilliant collection of kind of, it's hard to say what they are, they're genre blurs. So they're, they're narratives, they're autobiographical, but they're slightly fictionalized, called If You're a Girl that Semiotext published. And Armed Response was her second book. It's called a novel, but uh, she is the main character in her own name. Her uncle, actually, and in the book, uh, was the songwriter Leo Robin, who wrote Thanks for the Memories. Uh, and the book is about her coming to Los Angeles to deal with family. Um, there's a killer scene in the book describing her uncle's funeral where you know Bob Hope who is his great buddy gets to the funeral late and <laughs> they're having the service in this glassed in room and Hope can't find the door <laughs> so he's kind of walking around the room banging on the glass trying to figure out what what's going to give it's one of the, it's what it's you know and, and she has this very subtle there's a way that she writes where it almost feels like you're reading her journal. You know, it's, it's very sort of um, unpolished and kind of, you know, it almost feels first drafty. Um, but she's, her timing is incredible, and she's just really subtle and smart. And the Armed Response title comes because she's living, uh, visiting um, a relative who lives in a, an alarmed house in Beverly Hills. So every time she opens a door, you know, the, the, the house talks. And mm -hmm. so, you know, she, there's this whole sort of series of riffs on, you know, what we, how we jail ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when you we were in talking about your, your book, Sidewalking, one of the things we talked about is your first impressions of L.A. For me, one of the first impressions were, the, were those signs on people's lawns that said armed response. And the, it was a really large part of the landscape to my fresh eyes. I was astounded by them. There were a lot of them. And then there would be those private cops driving around the neighborhoods. Abs absolutely. It seems, I don't know if it's gone away or they've become invisible to me. Um, I do think that there was a, a while where people were buying armed response signs you know, at the dollar store, you didn't have to, and then just sticking them in their alarm. Oh, absolutely. There's absolutely no right. question about it. I once rented an apartment that had been wired for an alarm 
but it didn't, you know, they, the alarm had been pulled out when the previous tenants had left. And there were armed response signs in the windows, these decals, and we didn't, we were too lazy to scrape them off. So we lived for a while in a house that had fake armed response signs. Yeah. And I had a friend who put a little blinking red light in her car. She had a her <laughs> mechanic put a little blink, blinking red alarm light in her car, and, and, and it worked just fine. But uh, th- they seem to have gone away, the armed response signs. I, you know, it's funny. I haven't noticed them, and I agree. I don't know whether it's just that my eye got blind to them or, or that they actually did go away. But it is interesting. I mean, in a way, they were emblematic of that period of uh, that early 90s period of Los Angeles. Mike Davis in City of Courts calls it Fortress LA. Right. That sense of all the gated communities and the kind of, you know, the really are clearly articulated divisions, um, which don't seem to have become um, the future Los Angeles. Well, people don't need signs because now they have guns. Because <laughs> everybody's armed. The novel is Armed Response. The author is Ann Rower. David Eulen, thanks for coming back to the LARB Radio Hour. Anytime. John Romano, who has been on the LARB Radio Hour before, was kind enough to come back to talk about the Philip Roth novel, American Pastoral, that he adapted as a movie. John, welcome back to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you. Good to see you again. We're thrilled about this film, of course, because uh, we're all Roth lovers in this in this room. Um, actually, Ernesto, I don't know if Ernesto is a, is a Ernesto. Philip how Roth do you feel lover. about? Oh, he's, he's not, he's not sure. crazy about okay. him, but the rest of us are very very happy about uh, about this. You've been working on it for quite a while. It's a peculiar thing. Yes, fourteen years, and oddly, I read the book just as a reader, uh, which. You know, I as am for does. pleasure, as mm-hmm. one does, mm-hmm. uh, and read through it and enjoyed it very much. And even though I had already been 20 years writing movies and television, it never occurred to me that it was a movie. So when Linda Obst uh, uh, first uh, approached me from Paramount, as she had been originally involved with the project before the present producers, Lakeshore, uh, Tom Rosenberg, and Gary Lucchese, who really got this made in spite of every possible obstacle, and to whom I owe a great deal, and, and Philip Roth does too. Uh, when, when she approached me with it, I thought to myself, I must be the wrong uh, guy, because I read the whole book as a professional screenwriter, and it never occurred to me there was a movie in there, because Roth himself had made a kind of messy fantasy hash of the order of the thing. You know, the first two-thirds run pretty straight, and then there's this sort of fantasy last hundred pages of a barbecue that doesn't really take place, and, and the daughter comes from nowhere. Anyway, the details and are... It's all, it's all refracted it, and it turned refracted, another... And it turns out, he, and he says overtly that this isn't really what happened, I'm making this up. So that's a kind of thing that which is, can be wonderful in the hands of a great novelist, but doesn't film particularly well. But once I sort of committed myself to uh, finding the movie in here and made up my mind what could not possibly reach the screen, then I think it was, I don't want to say easy, but I never wrote so happily and well once I was telling the story of Swede and his daughter and his wife and just let everything else uh, fall away. We should say you and McGregor directed the movie. Directed the movie and starred in it. And Jennifer Connelly plays Dawn and Dakota Fanning is Mary. In the decision that you made to kind of um, focus on the Swede story and get rid of the the, uh, the the frame tale, as it were. No, the frame tale's in there. Oh, but, the frame tale is in there. But yes, Nathan Zuckerman is in there. Mm. And, and we should say for people who haven't read the book, it's about the troubles of a Newark glove maker who has a daughter who has fallen in with 1960s radicals. The weatherman, essentially. The weatherman, essentially. Yeah. And how, how his life falls apart as a result of that. And it's called American Pastoral because he starts out as the American dream itself. He's a second generation. Uh, uh, He's Jewish. His father has a glove factory that he takes over. And he is also, is based on a real character, the greatest 
high school athlete in the history of New Jersey in three sports. He goes on to be an officer in the Marines at the end of World War II. He comes home and marries Miss New Jersey. We start departing from the reality. He comes home and marries an Irish girl from, from Elizabeth, New Jersey, and they, they move to the colonial western part of New Jersey, sort of George Washington's New Jersey, and they live in a perfect house, and they have an adorable little girl who stutters a little who then grows into what the book calls the angriest kid in America. And it blows a hole in his life, and it is very much, as Roth has said repeatedly, it's the book of Job. All the things that happen to the Swede happen because, because shit happens. And if you look, you keep examining the character, the story, the language for what I did wrong, you know. And that's why, as a parent, it's heartbreaking. And he never gives up. He will never give up. On his on his daughters, everyone else falls away. So it becomes a heroic uh, tale of, of surviving what life can dish out at its worst. And the American pastoral of it rots on the screen. It began with a wonderful cinematographer, Martin Ruha, who shot The American and Harry Brown and so forth. And uh, Martin and and Ewan in, made the beginning of the movie look like this fabulous commercial for living the American good life. And the moment that Mary's anger rises. Uh, you, you, they actually started using different lenses, different equipment, and it sort of rots before your eyes. It's a fantastic achievement on a purely cinematic level, I must say. And it's a great novel about uh, the generation gap, as we used to call it, right? It's about this kind of the, the, a deep falling out between parents and children parents that and happened children. In, the, in the late 60s and early 70s. That's right, Tom, but very specifically between liberal parents and radical children. Swede is part of the New Jersey Businessman Against the War. He goes and sees Senator Clifford Case in Washington. He's there. Everybody in our family is against the war. Mary says Swede over and over again. But not like me, Mary Stutters. You know, she's, it's the difference between liberals and radicals. It's really Roth's comment on that war. It's sort of like saying, yeah, there were conservatives. Let's, let's bomb North Vietnam back into the Stone Age. They're not part of the conversation. The conversation is here. If you love America, if you want to defend American values, if you want to sustain this country and you think that the right has it wrong, and you want to be a liberal and make a good world. So the Swede's factory, in the movie, you'll see the Newark riots of 1967, the black riots, um, uh, which were every, it's, it, from which Newark has only very recently begun to recover under Corey, great mayor Cory Booker. Um, and you see that he's the one who keeps his factory open and lets anyone who works there work there. He doesn't shut down. He doesn't move to Puerto Rico. And he gets an award for that. And, of course, Mary spits in his eye. You know, uh, right? And well, so that, it's, that, it's, yeah. it's that generation gap, but but refined because in in many a family, dad was a World War II veteran in favor of the war, and you were burning your draft card and you fought at the dinner table. This is more closer yeah. to home for many of us. I think so because I think that the the counterculture as a whole in the in the, in these years was tended to be staffed by people with somewhat liberal parents. Yes. They were, they were, these, were not, these were not kids that were coming out of uh, Oklahoma uh, evangelical families for the most part. They were coming out of New Jersey suburbia and, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the, they were college students. They were not, yes. they were not working class And they weren't folks. all they Marys. Were not, I mean, Mary, yeah. uh, it's not giving much away to say she blows up a post office, people die. They weren't all Marys. There's such a thing as a committed kid like myself, burned a draft card, went to Canada, whatever you had to do uh, to oppose the war. We didn't all turn into weathermen. But right. Roth really makes us look at how the, the fact that they were terrorists 
that's what they were. It's interesting that both this book and the first draft of the screenplay was done before 9-11. And it has an amazing timeliness now because you're writing a novel, you're making a movie about the growth of a terrorist. And we don't, you know, we're not fond of using that word about the Port Huron Statement or Students for a Democratic Society on a bad day. But that's what it meant. I mean, the motto was we will burn, destroy, loot and kill uh, honky America down to the ground. I mean, those were the, we, you know, and the songs we sang, there's the time for violent revolution. And we said, oh, how cute. I remember that song. Had it in my dorm. Oh, next to the Mao poster and the Che poster. Well, guess what? That stuff got very real in the last decade. And when you look look at 60s radicalism in that context, you want to break a few vinyl records. You want to lose a little of one's nostalgia. When we, have a, when we throw in some stock footage of, of, of Woodstock, ain't as much fun as it was in the Tom Hanks well, uh, HBO I, documentaries. Now, now you're, you're kind of <laughs> slipping and sliding the way people were in the mud in Woodstock uh, for, yeah. between, uh, between a, a kind of very non-violent, uh, very... Um, peace and love Woodstock experience and, and people bombing, um, sh- shooting policemen. Well, you know, I, there, 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 my... There's very little of the, of the counterculture that was wrapped up in that kind of revolutionary In the violence. year 1971, mm-hmm. 4,000 bombs were set off in the United States by the radical left. Over 4,000 bombs. We actually have a news report in the movie that's showing that. And I got to say, this was very hard for me because I am a card-carrying 60s kid. I was in Chicago, Democratic Convention. I worked for Gene McCarthy in New Hampshire. But there was always this other voice around, this other voice that would say, let's take the march down the street. The cops don't want us to go down in order to radicalize our fellow student leaders, future mm-hmm. student body presidents, our Bill Clintons are, you know. And so there was always some, and that, and we would say, no, no, we have a mass movement here. This is America. We're, we're clean-cut kids. I'm going to law school next year. There was always a tension between the, what you might call the patriotic left. We used to say, we should have, the, the kind of McCarthy kid that I was, RFK kid that I was, we say, we're the ones that should have America love it or leave it on our bumper sticker. Because what's more American than letting black people in Mississippi vote? But that wasn't the language of Bernadette. You know, that wasn't the well, language yes. of the, it. And it wasn't the, wasn't the language of uh, the, the, founding, the founding fathers either, right? I mean, that, they were violent revolutionaries. Were, that, that, were, that's right? right. That's right. But it's interesting, right? I mean, there's a, there's a difference between the... Um, the appeal of a certain kind of rhetoric and the way a rhetoric of um, fighting violence with violence energizes young people like I was at the time. I I, I never wanted to blow up a building, but but I didn't have any problem with the the language of revolution that was that was surrounding the counterculture neither did, neither did it, I. I, it, I had the same record as you made, did it made sense and it was and it seemed like anything less that is to kind of um, be an amelioristic liberal who would somehow kind of help uh, register people to vote um, that was not uh, an adequate response to be well, well wait it is also the case that not all the things that were said in that spirit made sense. And it, and it is also, <laughs> it, it is also the case that we, we, we were too stoned, I think, to me. Um, <laughs> uh, and it is also the case that it's often in history that what starts out as rhetoric 
uh, actually leads people to some very dark places. I don't know when this show airs, but I'm hoping the rhetoric that you hear from someone like Donald Trump about making America great, USA, USA, that that doesn't turn into what historically it has turned into. At the moment in which we're recording this, that's mere rhetoric. Yeah. But you put some guns behind that. Yeah. And if these people don't c- calm down. And by the way, we Absolutely. taught them a lot of tricks that they're, they're now using. I'm afraid of, of Kant and what it can do. At American Pastoral, it was an urgent book. It is an even more urgent movie. John Romano, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Seth, Laurie, Tom. Thanks to John Romano. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano, czar of scheduling, Natalie Chudnovsky, spiritual advisor, Aviva de Kornfeld. We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation, and as usual, we would like to thank them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes. Better yet, give us a rating. You know what? I don't care if you give us a rating. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Lori, will you be back next week? I will. Will Tom, you? I will, Tom. Yeah. See you then. <laughs>